as Kristen said, we hope by the end that I can connect all three of those passages. Um, I'm sure many of you are recovering from Christmas festivities. I know that many of us kind of build up from the time of Thanksgiving all the way December 25th, and by the time comes and we have the big day, uh, afterwards we kind of come down off of that high, uh, and we think Christmas is over. But actually, Christians all over the world are celebrating still in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas. Now, there are many traditions that correspond to the 12 days of Christmas, but we actually know from Scripture what happened on the eighth day of Jesus's life. And if you count uh, from December 25th as the first day of his life, you can actually count all the way to January 1st as the eighth day of his life. So we actually know what happened on January 1st all those many years ago. And this is kind of different than the rest of Jesus's life. We know so little about what happened in his life all the way from ages 12 to 30. Uh, it's kind of, we, we have very little information what happened then. We very rarely know what happened on precise days of his life, but we actually know two things that happened on one, one, one. All right, just for our sake this morning, this is what we're going to call that day, January 1st, the first year of our Lord. Now, these two things, one of them is familiar to all parents, and the other is familiar to parents of baby boys. On the eighth day, Jewish boys were named by their father. We actually see this from Matthew chapter 1. Joseph woke up, and he was told by the angel what to name his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. But in Luke chapter 2, we actually know exactly what day that happened. On the eighth day, he was named. We also know what happened on the same day, a ritual called circumcision. And this, we don't have to just see in the New Testament. We know it from the Old Testament. Genesis 17, 12 says, For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. And Leviticus 12 reaffirms it in the law. On the eighth day, every Jewish boy is to be circumcised. Now, for most of us, you're probably wondering, why in the world should I care about that? I mean, can't you be a Christian without knowing what happened to Jesus on the second week of his life. But by the end of this sermon, I hope to answer the following questions or address the following topics. Who saves you? Where salvation comes from? What you're saved from? And how many people can be saved? Now, I know that that seems like a lot of information to glean from two little facts about his life, but I really believe that if we connect this day in the life of Jesus, to the rest of the Bible, we can glean information to address all of these questions. And we'll start with the second one, where salvation comes from. Now, our first passage was from Genesis 17, and we just did a whole series on the story of Abraham, so we don't want to cover old ground. But the short version is this. 4,000 years ago, God made a covenant with this man, Abraham, and he picked a sign for that covenant. God loves to do this. He loves to give reminders of his promises. For many of you, you probably grew up hearing the story of Noah. God promised not to flood the earth, and he gave him a sign in the sky. Do you remember what that sign is? A rainbow, okay? For Abraham, the Lord promises to him that he will become a great nation, and the sign for that promise is to get circumcised. And I know 
Abraham was probably thinking, you know, why didn't I get a rainbow? Noah's sign is a lot better than mine. But he obeyed, and he was actually circumcised at 99 years old. So the point that we, we, of reading this passage from Genesis is very simple. To be in the family of Abraham, a boy had to be circumcised. They are commanded by God to have this sign of the covenant inscribed in their flesh. And it's such a big deal that in this same passage, God says this. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be, what are those two highlighted words? Cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If Jesus didn't get circumcised, he would have been cut off from his people. But Joseph and Mary mark their son with this permanent sign in his body. And it tells us a very simple fact about who Jesus is. Jesus is a Jew. Now, I know that th this is not rocket science. You might think, okay, Mitch, you're starting off pretty obvious for 2023. But I love to restate these four words in, in very different ways so that we never forget it. Your sins were forgiven on the cross by a Jew. If you go to heaven, you should thank a Jew for the gift of eternal life. Each and every Sunday, we sit in this room and we worship and sing songs to a Jew. If we're not willing to say that, we don't really believe this. Jesus is a Jew in the present tense, not in the past tense. It's not like he pretended to be a Jew on earth for a while and then he left it all behind. No, no, no. He rose from the dead with his Jewish body and ascended into heaven with that body. Our Lord, our King, our Judge is right now a Jew, which means that salvation comes from the Jews. This is a quote from Jesus. I'm not making this up. I didn't invent this verse and try to paste it in my Bible. It's actually in yours, too. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So we actually have an answer to this question just from the fact that Jesus is circumcised. Salvation comes from the Jews. Now, our next question is, okay, well, then what are we saved from? If we believe that he is our savior, then who are our real enemies? Now, at the time of Jesus's birth, there was a really common misconception that the Messiah would come to save them from the Romans. There are lots of passages in the Old Testament about God delivering Israel from the hands of their enemies, so it's not silly for them to put two and two together. When they read their Old Testament, their Bible, they knew that the, that the Messiah would come, that he was this promised anointed king. But at the same time, they were oppressed by the Romans. So they thought, if the king comes, if our Messiah comes, then guess what? The Romans are going to be gone. He's going to kick them out. Now, Jesus' name does not help this misunderstanding. If you got out a Greek Bible and Jeff Peterson was here, he could show you that the Greek word that we read in the Bible for Jesus' name is Iesu. Okay, we're going to try that. Don't worry if you mess up. His name is one, two, three, Iesu. Okay, you would see that throughout the New Testament. Okay, when we translate that Greek word, we get Jesus. But the Hebrew word that it comes from is Yeshua, which means the Lord saves, and we translate that Joshua. Okay, so if you were a fellow Jew and you walked up and you shook hands with Jesus of Nazareth, he might say in Hebrew that he is Yeshua or Joshua. Okay, if you're a Jew, you know that there's a very famous Joshua from the Old Testament. Joshua, 
son of Nun. He was one of the slaves set free from Egypt, and he was the successor to Moses. And just like Kristen read a second ago from Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, we know that Joshua, the old Joshua, was famous for conquering enemies, specifically the Canaanites in the land. So if you knew Jesus' Hebrew name was Joshua, it wasn't surprising that people thought, well, maybe he'll be a warrior too. The similarities don't even stop at their names. Look at all of this list side by side, Joshua of Nun on the left side and Joshua of Nazareth on the right side. Both of them have predecessors who do their ministry in the wilderness or desert, Moses for Joshua and John for Jesus. They're both filled with the Spirit. They both have major life events at the same spot on the Jordan River right where Joshua crosses with all of the Israelites and the, the river parts and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the land, that's the exact same spot where Jesus was baptized. Joshua was one of 12 spies. Jesus picked 12 apostles, and they both are famous for giving rest. So the question is, in light of the fact that they have all these similarities, why is the old Joshua known for killing with the sword and the new Joshua is known for never carrying a sword at all. Why would God, through the angel Gabriel, pick this name if they are going to end up being so different? I mean, think about the way that their lives end. Joshua ends up defeating his enemies. He kills them by his sword, but Jesus dies at the hands of the Roman soldiers. I mean, how can Jesus do anything like Joshua and save his people if he's dead? You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They said, we thought he was the hope of Israel, but then guess what? He was crucified. And so they're going home because they thought the revolution was over and enemies, the Romans, were not defeated. So why would God pick this name of all the names of the Old Testament to call the Messiah Joshua. Well, they're not different because Joshua wins and Jesus loses. The big difference between the two Joshuas is that Jesus defeated his enemies without killing. In fact, the way he won the war is by his death. Look at the way Colossians describes Jesus's death on the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made, let's read those highlighted words together, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. Think about that. When the Romans were crucifying Jesus and nailing him to the cross, they thought, we're shaming him. We're humiliating him. But in reality, he was showing how shameful they were. They thought that they were victorious, but he triumphed over them. This verse right here shows us what we are saved from. The new Joshua did not come to kick out the Romans. He didn't come to conquer flesh and blood enemies. The new Joshua came to conquer our spiritual enemies. That phrase powers and authorities is the Bible's name for all the spiritual villains, sin, Satan, and death. That's what we're saved from. Now, if the old Joshua came to deliver the Israelites, the question for us is, who can be saved by this new Joshua? How many is his salvation really open to? 
Well, if you read his famous words, you can find out just how many people can be saved. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that, let's read these four words highlighted together, whoever believes in him. Okay, let's try that one more time on three. One, two, three. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This new Joshua says, whoever believes in me can be saved. Man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, whether you're from Texas or Tennessee, you can be saved if you believe in him, whether you're poor or rich, northern or southern, educated or illiterate, whoever believes in Jesus can be saved. And here's the thing about Jesus. Whatever he says goes. When he talks about his word, he's not messing around. One of the differences that we think we see between Joshua and Jesus is that neither carried a sword. But in one sense, Jesus actually does say that he came to bring a sword. It's just the kind of sword that matters most. He says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring, pe bring peace, but a sword. He's not referring to a physical sword with a blade and a handle. It's referring to the sword of his word. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus' word is referred to as a sword. In John's vision of Jesus, Jesus says, Repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The sword that Jesus wields is never used to take life. It is his message. It's his word. It's what he came to say. And it is a matter of life and death. The sword that he brings is actually stronger than the sword Joshua ever used. Joshua could take life, but Jesus can give eternal life. The stakes are so much higher with Jesus' words. People love to quote John 3, 16, but people don't quote verse 17 as much. Jesus says, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So, how many can be saved? Well, however many people believe in Jesus is how many can be saved. So we know that salvation is from the Jews and it's for the world, but it is for whoever has faith. Now, if we take all those answers and put them together, I think we can answer the very first one. Who saves us? Well, the only answer to that question is Jesus. Not a politician, not an economist, not an entertainer, no philosopher, only Jesus. Only that name can save us. Salvation is offered universally to whoever believes in him, but it's found exclusively in him. Acts 4 verse 12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So let's bring all this together, all of what we know just from the eighth day of his life. If we connect it to the rest of scripture and we see what the meaning of circumcision is and we see what the meaning of his name is, we can know that anyone can be saved. Regardless of their sins, regardless of their background, regardless of their failings and vices, anyone can be saved. 
but they can only be saved by this circumcised Jew named Jesus. So, many of us know that all of history, all the way we record history after his birth has been changed. We actually now count our years by Jesus' birth. We are currently, for the first time ever, in A.D. 2023. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, okay? It means the year of our Lord. Anno means year. It's where we get anniversary. Domini means Lord. It's where we get our word dominion. So starting today, we are living in the year of our Lord, A.D. 2023. So I want us to ask this question. If all of history changed, if it all hinges on that eighth day, the day our Savior was named Jesus, if it all turns around his entrance into the world, how can we dedicate this new year to the name of Jesus? How can we make everything in our lives revolve around him? I don't want history just to be counted by his entrance into the world. I want your history and my history to all revolve around him and his name. So how can we change in such a way that we devote the next 12 months to the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we are just overwhelmed by the power of the name of Jesus. We see in the New Testament that people are baptized in the name of Jesus. Their sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. People who've been invalids their entire life get up and walk because of Jesus. People who've been sick their entire lives are healed, totally whole and new because of the name of Jesus. We have access to you and can call you our Father because of the name of Jesus. God, we are amazed and enthralled by this one name, the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. God, we are amazed in awe of, in reverential fear of this name because there's, there is no greater name in all of creation God, we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change this year so that each one of us dedicate the next 12 months to that name. We want our work and our vocation to revolve around that name. We want our families to revolve around the name of Jesus. We want each and every minute to be dedicated to the name of Jesus. And we know that his name means the Lord saves. He can truly save us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.